1: Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Dateable Podcast. We are so happy to have you with us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And for anybody who's new to this podcast, in case you didn't know, we talk about dating, yes, on the surface level, but we go way deeper than that. We are really about human connection and the sociology of dating and the dating culture that we see today. So many of you are frustrated with the dating culture and the recent news of Roe versus Wade being overturned. Does not help any of that. And we are still kind of recovering from that. But so glad that last week, Julie texted me and she said, let's disrupt our regular programming. Let's do an episode about this. And it was completely the right call because we needed to address this and also share some of the stories from our community.
0: Yeah, we got a lot of comments about how it was super helpful that we published this episode. So I think seeing those comments made us realize that it was the right call. And, you know, we did have this episode planned originally, which we Mm -hmm. will be going into detail about why sex is pleasurable and why it's great. And I actually talked to you and I was like, do you think we should move this one to next season and Mm -hmm. put a different one that we recorded that's not as sex focused because of everything? Thing happening. And I'm glad that you were like, no, we need to keep going. Because while like, obviously, you know, there's dangerous sides of sex, we can't just live in fear either. And like, forget about all the positives of sex too. like, I don't think that yep. gives us a good culture moving forward.
1: And the Atlantic wrote about the sex recession that we're in and how younger generations are not looking at sex as sex as pleasurably as we used to. And I think it's really sad because sex is mm-hmm. part of of us. And it is pleasure if we choose it to be. And we shouldn't demonize sex. We should actually openly talk about sex. So I'm glad we're having this episode. But part of this is it makes me realize that Datable is such a safe space and our Facebook community is such a safe space. But as soon as we put content out on the internet, it becomes not so safe. So yes, we put some stuff on TikTok and on our Instagram reels and some of the comments we got about our last week's episode regarding Roe v. Wade, where we had to delete some of them because it was just so fucking inappropriate. One guy said, women are demons. Uh, We had someone else say, actually, that one... The one that you and I texted about, that one really brought it home for me was uh, it's women's responsibility to not open their legs, this man yeah. said. And I was shocked that someone's still saying that. I shouldn't be shocked. They're internet trolls. But I was so shocked that someone was actually say that out loud.
0: I know it is definitely not the world that we are in, in the sense of you and I, the people we encounter in our daily lives, the people that are in this community. But I'm sure people were just trolling Instagram and TikTok, looking up hashtags around Roe v. Wade and abortion and whatever yeah. and yeah. you know that specific person we clicked into his profile and it was all basically about like how abortion is terrible and you know I it who even knows if that's a real account like it could be a total fake planted troll True. but True. Yeah, it was definitely one of those things that I'm glad that we can remove comments. And, you know, we're generally pretty free speech and doing that. But then there becomes a time that you're like, this isn't even our listener base responding to this. Yeah, this isn't okay. (laughs) And, you know, like, I think, um, yeah, like, why? Of course, like, I don't want to stereotype because there's a lot of great men out there. But of course, all of the comments were from men, every single one of them.
1: Unfortunately, and... This is why we want to, I don't know, commend the men in our group because I think the men in our group truly think beyond that and are on our side. Uh, But as just a response to this comment of it's a woman's responsibility to close her legs, I'm sorry. No unplanned pregnancy was ever the result of one person. It takes two. (laughs) Yes, some women choose to get pregnant on their own, but that's that's a pregnancy they're going to go through with. Any unwanted pregnancy, there was someone else involved. It's a man involved. And so, yes, it's two people opening legs, you inserting your penis and coming in her. So (laughs) do not put the responsibility on one person. And also, if you heard our last week's episode, we had women who used all sorts of contraception that failed or were with partners who lied to them. And we also hear of these other stories that we didn't feature in this episode are women who had medical issues where mm-hmm. it would, having this child would put their life at danger. So yeah. stop with this bullshit. Okay. <laughs> stop with this it, blame game. It is not cool.
0: It really isn't. And, you know, there was this quote that Dr. Diane, who we had on our podcast yeah. a while back, she put up and, I want to read it because I think it's very relevant to all that's going on, but also where we're going with this episode and the future of, you know, two people using sex as a connection mechanism, because that is Mm -hmm. like a big piece of relationships. And I think that the fear here is that that's going to diminish that aspect as well. So what she said was, with today's Supreme Court ruling, sex will no longer be a fun get-to-know-you experience. From a mental health perspective, the question is, are you prepared the consequences of sex couples must have serious conversations about the impact of their actions birth control and relationship status mm-hmm. and i think it's like mm-hmm. the pandemic it's just like all these things just continue to make the barrier to have sex even larger and you know some yeah. people might say that's a good thing but i would also argue that you know re- to have a relationship that flourishes like sex is a really good thing and we should not be taking that away as a result of everything.
1: Sex is part of the communication in a relationship. So we're always talking about improving our communication skills. Sex is part of that. And I'm sad that we keep demonizing sex. We keep stigmatizing sex to the point where people are afraid of having sex, hoping that this episode will open that mindset up a little bit where we can see sex positively, but also just know why we have sex be more intentional mm-hmm. when we do it
0: yeah so we wanted to get sex therapist ian curter on the podcast yeah. he is the author of she comes first which Ooh. is i would say up there as one of like the like the sex bibles i would say yep, <laughs> probably yep. like with come as you are like when i think of like two sex books those are what i think of and he recently wrote a new book so tell me about the last time you had sex and, you know, just we'll get into the whole convo with him, but he is just such a refreshing take of how important sex is and mm-hmm. how like we we're just talking about in society, it's there's so much shame and demonization around it. But what is the flip side? And I think just hearing from him reminds you that sex is a beautiful thing and we should not mm-hmm. feel as shameful as we do about it.
1: So, Julie, tell me about the last time you had sex. <laughs> <laughs> some things are better
0: left off air Just
1: <laughs>
0: I know it's such an inviting title isn't it
1: <laughs> it really is the It does make you think about it, right? It makes you think about Mm -hmm. the last time you had sex, especially if you are in a relationship already. Maybe you don't pause to think about like these moments of your relationship. But having this conversation made me think about the last time I had sex. And, you know, I've been with my partner for four years. So sex has definitely changed. The cadence Mm -hmm. of sex has changed. But the way we connect now is so different than we did in the beginning. I feel like the way we connect now is to me what makes me feel so sexually attracted to him is when we can close the doors, be on our bed and just talk. <laughs> I know mm-hmm. that sounds maybe not that much of a turn on for other people, but that's such a turn on for me is when we can leave the dishes, the laundry out, you know, in the living room and close that door and just talk for hours. If we can, without those those distractions, because I realize in the beginning of a relationship, what makes things sexy is that you don't see the day to day. Yeah, you, This is just a fantasy. You're like, you're not seeing the dirty uh-huh. dishes. You're not seeing the grocery list. But when you live together, you've been together for a long time, you do associate that person with the domestic responsibilities. Mm. And that's like the most unsexy thing in the whole wide world. <laughs> so uncoupling the two has been really helpful for me to get in the mood. I think,
0: you know, when I think about sex, it goes beyond just the the act. I think it's the closeness Mm -hmm. that you feel and connectedness and the cuddling and just being with this person in this uninterrupted space. I agree with you. It's like there's so much logistics happening on a day to day or but there's something about just like laying down with your partner, like even if it's not physically actually having sex, but just being close to one another that reminds you that, you know, a relationship I, you know, I feel this way about my partner that he is my best friend, but I think, you know, for it to be more than just a friendship, I don't want to generalize because I know there is like asexuality and all that, but for Mm -hmm. like the majority here, it's there is this element of sex that's layered on. And, you know, something that's striking about this conversation that we get into is that like people don't want to say that they're looking for that sexual connection anymore because I Mm. think there's like such... A stigma like that shouldn't be the quality that's important because, you know, we all get old and ugly. But I think there is an element that there needs to be that attraction to your partner. And I don't think you should feel guilty about and like suppress that. Like, I think there is a reason why you're with someone. A lot of it is because there is that sexual pull and that intimacy.
1: I remember when I turned 18, I was still I was in the US. My grandma's in China and she sent me... (laughs) Oh, God.
0: Oh, God.
1: (laughs) And it was so cringy to me at that point. But she knew I had a boyfriend. She actually had met my boyfriend. She really liked him. But her message to me was sex is important. I mean, this is a traditional Chinese household in China. She's my grandma. And i I mean, I never witnessed this, thank God. But I'm pretty sure she was (laughs) very into sex.
0: Well, the fact that she's giving you this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I was a little embarrassed, <laughs> but it was a red underwear set, you know, bra and oh panty God. set. It was really cute. And she didn't, like, send me – she didn't write a letter, but that's what she was implying. And years later, I've learned to realize the reason why she's so uh, – What's the word? Um, she's so alive. I don't know. She's uh-huh. still alive, but she was so alive and vibrant. It was because she loved human connection and she really mm-hmm. loved exploring that part of her. And maybe with my grandpa, who is no longer with us, but I don't even want to think about that. But it's good. <laughs> it, it's good to know that I come from a family that uh, that at least sees that as a priority, especially in a Chinese f- family. And I think that's why I was just such a horny kid because <laughs> maybe I just passed down. There is, you know, that theory that it is passed down is hereditary. But I was, just, I was a very horny kid. I'll leave it at that. We'll save that for another episode.
0: I feel like you've talked about that before. <laughs> I probably have. <laughs> People can go through the archives on that one. It's interesting, though, even just the language you were using right now, though, is like, I don't want to think about it or like all that. Yeah. And I think that's so ingrained in us that it's something that we shouldn't be thinking about. And it's almost like wrong if we're envisioning people that, but instead of celebrating like this is a foundation of a relationship. And I'm I'm glad that we can like have that open conversation today because I do believe it is a foundation and we need to start celebrating that
1: more. You know, sometimes when I'm driving in my car, because in LA, that's all you do is just be in your (laughs) car. I, uh, think I'm a stand-up comedian and I go over some material in my head and the last time I was stuck in traffic I had some pretty good material I was like you know sex wouldn't be stigmatized if our parents actually forced us to have sex when we were kids kind of like how they forced us to eat broccoli and Brussels sprouts can you imagine if your parents are like did you have sex today well go (laughs) go get your sex today okay sex is good for you go do it don't do your homework go have sex imagine if we grew up like that we wouldn't be having well we certainly wouldn't be stigmatized sex but also maybe we just wouldn't view sex as such a such a mystery
0: well i think of mean girls every time you know that scene where they're oh yeah with the um, what is it like the football coach that's now leading sex ed He's like, you yeah. Will, if you have sex, you will die. That <laughs> is what I always die. think of, and I feel like that was agreed when you were younger. Yes, this is something really bad, and yeah, and I think that what we've learned from some of the comments on our Instagram and TikTok is there's a cohort that still very much believes that. So I'm glad yes. we're you know continuing with this episode, continuing to also push the narrative that sex can be a wonderful thing. We can't forget that. That doesn't mean that diminishes anything that's going on any more or less. I think that we need to keep them as separate entities, which is difficult because they are interconnected, but it's important that we continue to keep them separate. Yes. Okay. Uh, So announcements this week. You know, share this with a friend. I feel like we all Mm -hmm. need that reminder right now. I've had so many conversations with friends over the last week of just you know how sad we all are just down on things and I feel like this episode will make us remember the good stuff so give pay it forward share it with a friend or even share last week's episode with a friend I thought it was personally very therapeutic hearing real people share their story even though yeah you know it's not always the most uplifting conversation the facts that people are able to share what they went through how they process this I found it therapeutic so depending on what your friend needs, you got your choice. You can send them either or or both depending on the mood. Love and it. then at Dateable Podcast is our Instagram and TikTok. We had a viral video the other day. I don't know. 10K Is that viral? <laughs> Maybe not viral, but viral for us when the rest of ours are like it's all not even close. So relatively <laughs> viral. We'll call it that. Join us on TikTok. Help us grow. This is our infancy, but I feel like we're, we're making progress. Every day is a little better on TikTok.
1: I'm not going to lie. I was a little embarrassed to give out our TikTok in the beginning, <laughs> but now I feel like we're putting some effort into it. So yes, please follow us on TikTok. It, it is... A- kind of a different content that we're putting out there, a different tone. Um, But we would love your support on that channel. Yeah. and I are
0: gonna continue to evolve it. We're gonna think about a little further how we want to go out on TikTok. So you might as well get in now. So you're here to see all the trials
1: and the good, bad and ugly.
0: Yeah, exactly. I was like, there might be some stuff that we regret later, but you'll be able to see it if you follow us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's how you hook people into following you, right? You're like, just watch yeah, the trade wreck that's about to come watch out. Watch <laughs> the
1: shit show. Happening. <laughs> yes.
0: Okay, well, before we get into it, let's take a second to hear from some of our sponsors.
1: This episode is made possible by Filter Off. So we hear this conundrum from you all quite a bit. You match with someone on an app, you exchange a few messages and get excited to meet them. And then when you do finally meet them, IRL, you're disappointed. It's like they're a completely different person than the one you exchange messages with. We can't have this happen anymore because your time is precious. You need to check out Filter Off. With Filter Off, you can see the person you're matching with and actually get to know them over a quick video date before you waste your time getting ready, hopping into your car or onto the train. No more swipe fatigue, no more catfishing, no more text messages pretending to be dates. Imagine being able to go on a date that's not entirely predicated on someone's ability to send text messages because you'll have already seen them. Them and talk to them for a few minutes and you'll have a better sense of who they are and how you get along. Imagine being able to find someone who loves you for you and not some silly profile of statistics. Download the Filter Off app or go to getfilteroff.com and use the promo code DATEME to receive five extra daily picks. Start making meaningful connections today at getfilterof and use the code DATEME. Filter Off, date the person, not the profile. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. We know the importance of taking care of our bodies. We work out, we eat right, we know the formula for that. But it's also time we also understand the importance of taking care of our minds. Now, there are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. But there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. My BetterHelp therapist has really helped me put frameworks around my thoughts so that I don't end up in a never-ending loop of thoughts that go nowhere. This has been so valuable for me in how I process my negative self-talk, and also how I process the conflicts in my life. I love that BetterHelp is online therapy, and they offer video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. I find it to be much more affordable than in-person therapy, and it's so convenient. You can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours after you sign up. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com. That's better H-E-L-P. H-E-L-P dot com slash D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E for 10% off your first month.
0: Okay, let's hear from Ian Kerner.
1: Let's talk about sex, shall we? We should always be talking about sex, and the question is always not about how much sex should you be having or what type of sex. It's really about how to make sex more pleasurable. It seems like one of those things that we don't really talk about. I mean, we certainly didn't learn it in school, and. We should learn more about it, right? There needs to be some sort of education around it. So uh, I'm sure some of you, and more many of you, may have a copy of the book. She comes first, and we are so lucky to have the author with us, Ian Kerner, for this episode where we'll be talking about how to have pleasurable sex. So who is Ian? He is a sex counselor and psychotherapist. Um, some would call him a sexual detective. I love that for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. He specializes in sex therapy, couples therapy, and working with With individuals on a range of relationship issues. He's the author of She Comes First. If you don't know it, the cover has a very beautiful papaya on it. And I just noticed it has a banana on the side. I just recently (laughs) noticed that the papaya is very prominent. And his recent book is called So Tell Me About the Last Time You Had Sex. He's 55 years old, lives in New York, and he is married. Welcome, Welcome. Ian. Welcome. We're so
2: excited to have you, Ian. I'm totally excited to be here. And uh, I'm so excited (laughs) that you brought up She Comes First because it's, uh, I wrote it a while ago but it remains, you know, out there in the world and one of my favorite books that I've done. So I'm happy that you brought it up. Iconic. And, and you know, the uh, the banana is very much in the background. That was purposeful yes. uh, by my publisher. Yeah. <laughs> she, wanted a, she wanted a big papaya and a little banana.
0: As the way it should be, no, I'm just <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> So you've clearly been an expert in the sex field. Like, how did you even get started? What gave you the drive to educate here?
2: Wow. Well, you know, it really goes back to uh, growing up as an emerging young adult uh, back in the 80s. And this was pre-internet, pre-magazines like Men's Health. There was really little to no information. I grew up in a very sex avoidant home with a single mom. It wasn't sex negative. It just wasn't sex positive positive. And um, I really struggled with sexuality. I particularly struggled with sexual problems. And actually, the she comes first begins with the line. It was the hardest thing I ever had to write, confessions of a premature Mm. ejaculator. Uh And, uh, and, um, you know, that was an issue that I struggled with. And back then, I mean, it just led me to feel forlorn and depressed and despairing because basically I couldn't get the lovemaking and the sex that was in my head to connect With my penis, and I was a a really poor lover, um, and there were so many misconceptions at the time, and so really. In trying to figure out how to get on the other side of that issue, I really began to educate myself. I read Kinsey and Masters and Johnson and Cher Height. So it really mm. launched my career as a sex therapist, just trying to be in the world as a lover. It was powerful mm. work and um, it continues to be my own journey, just always evolving my own sexuality across as I go through the life cycle and really connecting to to, um, you know, other people around their sexuality, but really understanding that we have these sexual selves and our sexual self is a central part of who we are. And Many of us exile our sexual selves or, you know, push our sexual selves away. So helping people to integrate their sexual selves into their lives is kind of where my work is at.
1: I would argue that a lot of people may have been in the same position or still are are in the same position where they just feel like that's the way sex should be. Even if it's just not pleasurable, they may feel like this is the way it is. So what was the turning point for you where you thought, no, no this has got to be better than that.
2: I don't think I ever felt that sex should just be, uh, you know, mediocre, or, you know, I mean, I do find with a lot of my patients that they do come in with strong beliefs, like, oh, sex should be painful. Like a lot of women actually come in believing that, you know, sex comes with some pain, or a lot of women come in believing, you know, basically orgasms are for masturbation, not for partnered sex, or pleasure isn't for partnered sex. I have a lot of men and women who come in saying well, sex just isn't that important, right? Like married people don't have sex. Mm. So why should I be picking a partner with any degree of real sexual attraction or caring about sex? Like a lot of people like kind of push sex down the ladder to kind of like, you know, the bottom of the ladder there. But um, I think and maybe this is why I ended up in this work that, uh, you know, sexuality, sensuality, connecting, lovemaking, skin against skin, breath with breath, it was always hugely important to me. And, and I really wanted to, I mean, she comes first Is about being a caring lover and being a courteous lover. And, uh, wanting to give pleasure and uh, and knowing that the real pleasure is not just in receiving, but in giving pleasure.
0: Right. Well, that book was so iconic, I mean, for so many reasons, but I think because it was written by a hetero man focused yeah. on women's pleasure and what you just said, giving over just receiving. I feel like the message before your book was very much orgasm, get the pleasure, you know, like don't worry about your partner as much. Why did you feel like this message needed to be heard and this book needed to be written?
2: Well, like I said, I was... Um, I was struggling with premature ejaculation. So basically, I wanted to increase the length in which I could, uh, my duration, my sexual duration. And I, as I was reading, and as, as I was researching and learning, I really started to understand, um, I started to become clitoring, right? I was <laughs> ill clitoring, and I started to become uh, clitoring and really understand the role of the clitoris as the powerhouse of a female orgasm. And I realized that, hey, I could figure this issue out and last as long as I want. But that doesn't actually mean I'm going to be engaging in pleasurable sex because 80% of women do not orgasm from intercourse alone Mm. because, you know, the most sexual positions fail to adequately stimulate the clitoris. So really, my mission went from just trying to last longer in a very kind of penis phallocentric way uh, to really just developing a whole new paradigm of Sex that was outer course-based, not intercourse-based. And to me, mm-hmm. that is still one of the fundamental issues that I find individuals and couples coming in with. I mean, um, my new book is called So Tell Me About the Last Time You Had Sex. And basically, if I'm working with a heterosexual individual or a heterosexual couple, 95% of uh, people, the last time they had sex, it was intercourse-based. Intercourse was central to the sexual um, experience. And if I ask them, how long did it take you to get to intercourse, most couples will say anywhere from zero seconds to six minutes, right? So there's like very little happening other than intercourse. So I think that became my main message, much more so than just giving pleasure, or lasting longer. Mm -hmm. It really became, you know, developing what I call a sex script, the sex that you engage in that's uniquely your own and rebelling against the cultural sex script that's so intercourse-based.
1: Okay, so I want to focus on that because I want to jump around a little bit. When you're talking about how people do jump into intercourse quite fast. And you also talk about in the book, She Comes First, uh, turning foreplay into core play. So what does that mean? I'm guessing it's around, along the same lines.
2: Yeah, it is. It really means just um, intercourse gets so privileged as a behavior, right? Like a hand against a vulva, a mouth against a vulva, a mouth on a mouth, a mouth on a penis, right? Those activities get so sort of deprivileged mm-hmm. and intercourse gets so privileged. So, in turning foreplay into core play, first of all, it's just recognizing that those are the behaviors that we associate with foreplay are just as important, uh, if not more important, than intercourse. And you know, building sex scripts. That are based on those behaviors. You know, there was a study done of gay and bisexual men, 25,000 gay and bisexual men, and they were asked about the last time they had sex, and only 35% actually engaged in intercourse. Mm, 65% of gay and bisexual men engaged in outer course based sex scripts, they basically took 10 behaviors, 10 basic behaviors, everything from kissing on the mouth to hand against penis, you know, all that kind of foreplay stuff. But in the end, I believe there were more than um, 1300 combinations, those 10 behaviors were put together in more than 1300 combinations of these 25,000 men. So it just shows you the incredible variety uh, that can go into turning foreplay into core play in a very personalized way.
0: I think the penetration bit, I mean, that's very heteronormative too, right? Like you touched on it, like especially lesbian couples and, you know, all different configurations. Sex doesn't need to mean just intercourse. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to just mean intercourse. So I guess like out of those, all the combinations, like I can think of, you know, the obvious ones, but maybe what are some of the less obvious ones that kind of surprised okay. you that may right. get our listeners being like, oh, I didn't know we could do that.
2: Okay. You know, I also just want. To say one thing, which is in my work, once I eventually became totally outer course based and totally clitorate, and I see this with young people today, I was shocked how many women are mm-hmm. heterosexual women are intercourse focused. I work with yep. so many men who would love nothing more. Than to take the emphasis off of their penises right and to be able to uh-huh. like focus on their mouths and their hands and get rid of i know you did a show on sexual anxiety uh-huh. about uh yeah. erectile unpredictability you don't know how many men crave just like outer course and taking the pressure off but they're with uh-huh. partners who are very intercourse focused so i'm always so curious like intercourse isn't even the thing that's going to give you an orgasm Half of these women will say, Yeah, I don't expect to orgasm. It's just the thing mm-hmm. that I associate with sex, uh, and that I want most.
0: Mm, um, very interesting.
2: So I'm sorry, but I didn't mean to digress. The question was what are the most like uh quirky or uh Yeah, or
0: like unique like ways to pleasure yeah, that you wouldn't like think about <laughs> if there's a few that come to mind. You don't get through all thirteen hundred. <laughs> you know
2: the, be, the no no the, the the behaviors themselves are are not unique, and when you look at how they're organized, and apparently the more sexual behaviors that you have in a sex script, the more likely you are to generate arousal, pleasure, and orgasm. But honestly, there's simple things like uh, kissing and and hugging and oral sex and manual stimulation and um, mm. you know what's interesting too is how you organize those behaviors in your sex scripts. And sometimes I work with couples and intercourse doesn't have, if you deprivilege intercourse, then it doesn't have to be the main activity or the final activity. It can be an activity that happens in the middle and then you switch to other activities, right? So it's really just like thinking of this sort of like palette of colors that you can basically, um, you know, paint with. And 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 the ultimate idea is that you want a sex script with your partner that just generates pleasure, right? The whole thing mm-hmm. you had Emily Nagoski on I noticed I was looking yeah. through all of your podcasts. The whole mm-hmm. idea of like pleasure being the measure, I think, is is very powerful.
0: You know, it's fascinating when obviously like your book title, it's you know, it's it starts to be like, Oh, when was the last time I had sex? So I was thinking right. about it. And my mind immediately goes to intercourse. It does not oh, yeah. go to just kissing or touch and all that. And so I think you're very right that that is the, con- like the perception of what sex is.
2: Yeah. And you know, we're right now we're also just talking about, um, you know, physical behaviors, but one of the biggest things that I've noticed in my practice is that couples build sex scripts, whether they work or not, that are totally physically based and are lacking in psychological arousal. So mm. one of my missions is to really help couples kind of sheath a sex script, sheath those behaviors in some kind of psychological experience that gets the, the mind uh, erotically turned on.
1: Do you think someone would need to be clitorate to do that?
2: Um, need to be clitorate to do what exactly? To-, to
1: have pleasurable sex.
2: Do I think that somebody would need to be clitorate to have pleasurable sex? Well, if there's someone with a vulva in the room that's looking to have pleasure, I guess it would depend upon, you know, your definition of pleasure. Is pleasure, uh, you know, a psychological experience? Is it a physical experience? To what extent do orgasms matter? But, you know, for most of the patients that I work with, they want to have you know pleasurable sex they sometimes want to have fun sex or meaningful sex and they usually like that sex to be an absorbing experience that generates arousal that culminates in an orgasm and so if you are a person with a vulva then i think it's really important that you as the person with the vulva are in a clitorate mindset so that you can advocate for that kind of stimulation. And I think it's really important that uh, partners are uh, clitorate or uh, willing to uh, work on their clitoracy.
1: So, yeah, yeah, I'm asking this question because I love reading the book reviews of She Comes First because there were so many women who were shocked by how much a hetero man could know so much about a female body to the point where a lot of these women felt like they were educated about their own bodies. One review human said he has definitely done his homework. So I'm curious to know, how do you become clitorate? What is, even for someone who doesn't even have a clitoris, how do you become, how do you strengthen your clitoracy?
0: This word too. <laughs> <That's> so, <laughs> so great. great. <laughs>
2: Well, I think first of all, really understanding the anatomy of the clitoris and understanding that the clitoris involves uh, external structures that are on the surface of the vulva and internal structures that are inside the vaginal entrance. Um, So, first of all, you know, a lot of my book just focuses on um, the structure of the clitoris and definitely the glands or the head of the clitoris, which would be the equivalent of the glands or the head of the penis is the most sensitive part of the clitoris. But there are actually, um, they're called crura. There are legs. So imagine like uh, the clitoris and imagine the tip of the clitoris is what's visible on the surface of the vulva. And you definitely want to stimulate that rhythmically and consistently. And you can imagine that that part of the clitoris is probably a few centimeters at least above the vaginal entrance, right? So the position of the clitoris, the glands of the clitoris in relationship to the vaginal entrance, there's definitely could be up to like a a half inch. So you can imagine that most intercourse position could really miss the clitoris completely. So you Mm -hmm. definitely want to think about intercourse positions um, that are going to be able to stimulate the glands of the clitoris. So basically, the female superior position or woman on top yeah. is a great position to provide clitoral stimulation. But here's what's also interesting is that uh, we talk about the G spot, right? And sort of these internal regions of the vagina. And we talk about vaginal orgasms. But when you look at the structure of the clitoris, it is basically a wishbone. Right. So there's the Mm -hmm. tip of the clitoris that we're seeing. And then there are these legs that literally wrap around the entrance of the vagina. So when women are experiencing vaginal uh, pleasure, it is because the friction of intercourse is is creating vibration against those clitoral structures. So it's not like Mm. that vaginal pleasure is independent of the clitoris. So also then understanding that the most sensitive part of um, the vagina is going to really be the first two inches and the vaginal entrance and creating the right kind of friction and vibration to get the clitoris, all those clitoral structures completely enlivened, right? So that's sort of from an, an anatomical perspective. But the thing that it really bugs me is that so many of my patients come in and the first thing they do is go to that kind of direct genital stimulation of, of oral yeah. sex. They really think of it as like, oh, that's the first thing I'm going to do. And so it's like great activity, wrong time, you know, because there also has to really be um, a buildup of, of arousal, psychological arousal and physical arousal. So I think it's also understanding the timing of sort of when to focus on being clitorate, right? So like oral sex or Mm -hmm. direct clitoral stimulation is not the first thing you do within 30 seconds of hooking up. So I think it's also about thinking about the overall process of arousal.
0: I'm just so curious because I continue to be baffled by the 80% of women do not orgasm through intercourse. Like that stat like very much surprises me. And I know it's like I've heard it a lot. And I'm thinking about even like the interview we did with Emily Nagoski. I know everyone's wired different based on how much arousal they need and stimulation. Mm -hmm. I guess like from a What you were just saying, is it that, you know, women's bodies are just so different with their anatomy or is it like what is kind of the reason like why some women have no problem orgasming like through intercourse and others don't?
2: So there is an orgasm gap and that orgasm gap exists along two dimensions. One is related to the distance between the clitoris and the vaginal entrance. So some women are going to actually have a clitoral glands that's closer to the vaginal entrance, and the clitoris might actually be more consistently stimulated during intercourse. Mm. So that might be one reason. Remember, we also said that the G-spot is effectively clitoral structures wrapped around the vaginal canal. I mean, the vagina is not meant to be sensitive. It's meant to deliver babies, right? Women do not need more sensitive nerve endings when delivering babies. Like it's painful enough, right? So you can also imagine that For some women who are really turned on, just getting the friction of a penis in and out of uh, a vagina can create a level of vibration that really reverberates through the clitoral structures. So that's one dimension, which is to do with clitoracy. The other dimension that we talked about with time is also really important because sex especially for women and i'm not really not trying to generalize i'm just sort of working off of you know research and my own clinical Mm -hmm. experience Mm -hmm. sex especially for women is a process of getting absorbed right so you had emily Nagoski on and she must have talked about sort of inhibitors and exciters and turning on the ons and turning off the offs men are much less vulnerable to turn offs right they're able to really engage Mm -hmm. their exciters get very absorbed in sex, get aroused, and and keep going. There was one of my favorite studies was done uh, back in the early 2000s. I think a dozen women were placed in fMRI scanning tubes to see what goes on in the female brain during sexual arousal. So about a dozen women were put in mm-hmm. these sort of big scanners, these like MRI machines, while their partners basically masturbate, huh. you know, outside the tube, right? What a fun test. Yeah, it's like, where does that research <laughs> Happen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> so so basically, what was so interesting is the question was: what's going to be happening in the female brain during this process of going from non-aroused to aroused? And what was really interesting and what's different than the than the male brain is, well, first of all, there was a lot of activity in the female brain that was associated with an area called the somatosensory cortex that recognizes physical sensual sensation. So that makes sense. You touch the clitoris or you touch the vagina, part of the brain lights up, right? What was fascinating was, though, at a certain point, the female brain went from being very lit up to really going dark. Mm -hmm. And where it went dark was in regions that were associated with the environment, with stressors. Mm -hmm with anxiety, with observing the environment. So basically, to get really turned on, women also had to be able to turn off a part of their brain, right? So you asked why are some women more orgasmic during intercourse Mm -hmm. than others, I would argue that those women are probably able to get more present, more mindful, just more absorbed in the sex that they're having than women Mm. who are not, right? They're able to kind of go at a certain point into a kind of like flow state or autopilot state. So I think it's those two dimensions, right? Clitoral stimulation with the absorption in the sexual experience, with the mental absorption.
1: Mm. So, okay, this might be a very, (laughs) very ignorant question, but I only know what I know. So I only know the types of orgasms I've had. How do I know that there could be better orgasms out there i've heard people i mean at least on tv describe this whole body orgasm that i don't think i've ever felt but maybe i could work on that so how do i know it could be better and how do i even work on that better orgasm
2: (laughs) can you work on it can you work on it? the first thing i'm thinking about is the bullshit that's associated with trying to like go after some kind of super orgasm because as soon as you start, as soon as you start to try to do something you're thinking about doing that thing and once you're thinking right, about yes. doing that thing you're conscious and actually orgasm is a process of going a little unconscious right and sort of leaving mm. you know being able to turn off your brain right so you don't want to be thinking yeah. about anything you want to be clearing your mind so right already then thinking mm. about having a super massive extended orgasm already i think goes on the inhibitor side Mm. Of the spectrum. That is honestly the first thing that comes to mind is like this holy grail of some yeah. extended massive orgasm, I think is bullshit. I think it's just more, more marketing around trying to get your body to do something that's uh, non intuitive. What is interesting, though, is sometimes I'll have women come in and they'll say, well, yeah, I had 80 orgasms the last time I had sex. And I'm thinking to myself, huh, (laughs) you had 80 orgasms. That's really interesting. Now, women do have the innate capacity to have multiple orgasms in ways that men do not, Mm -hmm. right? After a man has an ejaculation, blood can Completely evacuates the, uh, the the genitals, right? And a man goes very quickly from an aroused state to a non-aroused state. But in women, blood is slower to flow into the genitals and much slower to flow out. So women don't go back to the pre-aroused state; they go into a kind of semi-aroused state. And what you want to do in that mm-hmm. semi-aroused state is up to you. You could sort of take mm-hmm. your time and go into a nice pre-aroused state and mm-hmm. just sort of snuggle and go to bed, or you could go on to get re-aroused and to have Have more orgasms. So I'm thinking when this woman, when people come in and say, Yeah, I had 80 or 100 orgasms, I had women come in and say, I had 200 orgasms. And I'm thinking, Wow, you had orgasms? Like, how much time did that take? Like, sometimes they're like a half hour. I'm like, Wait, you had 200 orgasms and a half hour.
1: Wow. So here's what's that?
2: So here's, so here's what's really interesting is, and this comes back to the world work. I don't know if you've had like a, a neuroscientist uh, Nicole on, uh at all. Nikki no, but we'll keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah, you should keep in mind. There's 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 basically this idea that there's a plateau phase before orgasm, right? Like there's um, there's a phase. What is the? Let me ask you both. Before you actually have the physical event of an orgasm where, you know, your brain kinda goes nuts in mm-hmm. the vagina tract. What do you notice? Let's just say in the 60 or 90 seconds leading up to that phase, what does that feel like? Is it arousing? Is it really pleasurable? To be really close, to be in that near state, what does that feel like to you?
0: I would say very pleasurable. Like it's like on edge almost. Like it's like about to, maybe that isn't pleasurable now that I say it. I don't know. It's like you're so close, but (laughs) it's not there yet.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There's like, I don't know. I have this like feeling of concentration. Just complete focus. Yes,
2: complete so I, I focus. Get myself
1: right. over that hump.
2: So yeah. you're thinking about getting to orga. Right? So, yes. so there's been some studies to show that women will often kind of confuse that edging space or that leading into orgasm with orgasm. And so there are a lot of little mm. peaks and valleys in that phase, right? So some women that say they've actually had 80 or 100 orgasms may not have ever actually had what would more um, clinically be uh, or biologically be seen as a an actual orgasm, which would include Uh, contractions of the vagina at half second intervals contractions of the anus right and studies have shown that a lot of women who say i'm having an orgasm are actually not having an orgasm but it's not saying they're not experiencing something orgasmic or pleasurable yeah so that's that's how i sort of look at those 200 uh orgasms interesting
0: let's hold that thought for a few messages we are so excited to share with you our new podcast exit interview
1: There's feedback that will make you cringe.
2: She could be a little bit hard-headed, like not reading the writing on the wall.
1: And feedback that will make you swoon. When she said that she had feelings for you. <laughs> I had no idea. Really? And maybe you'll learn a thing or two yourself about how you can be a better dater, lover, or partner. Obviously, like, knew is going to learn something. I didn't expect this. Welcome to Exit Interview.
0: Listen to Exit Interview on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: first month. And never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today.
0: Five thousand dollars—that's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand—that's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right—you can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back
1: today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, three hundred dollars. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get?
0: so I have a question for you. You know, I totally agree with you can't overthink it or it just like won't happen at all. And thinking about like, how do I have a better orgasm? How do I do this differently? When you're in the state, you're probably going to have zero orgasm. But at the same time, it's hard to not hear like, oh, this person had like 200 orgasms. Like, how do I <laughs> you know, get better and experience sex more? Like, what would you say to that like conflicting
2: school of thought? Right. Spoken like
1: a true type A personality here. <laughs>
2: right.
1: I need to get an right. A. I need to do better.
2: Right. <laughs> I would say... Make your sexual experience an exciting psychological sexual experience, right? There are also been studies that have shown that women can fantasize their way to orgasm Mm. without even touching themselves. I work with men who have erectile disorder, and I don't know the extent to which it's organic and biologically based or psychologically based. So I'll give them a homework assignment. I'll say, hey, next time you're going home to masturbate and turn on some porn, and that's what 99% of men do, uh, is turn on some porn. Keep your hands in. At your side and just let me know what happens mm. inevitably almost all of those men come back and say yeah i had a total heart on within about you know five minutes and then i i touched mm. myself and i was really able to have a great you know orgasm once i got there right so why are we not generating that psychological arousal together. I'm not saying that all of us Mm -hmm. are not, but many of us, we do it totally with ourselves, but we don't do it with each other. So we're only actually engaging 50% of our sexual apparatus the body. We're not really engaging the erotic imagination. So if you want to have better sex, if you want to have better orgasms, if you want to look back and say, that was a peak experience for me, I think that there needs to be a psychological dimension to the sex.
0: Very interesting. Mm, So, how do you start exploring things? I feel like, you know, what you typically hear of, like, try this kink or this fantasy. And it just feels like kind of like cohorted, overwhelming almost. How would you
2: advise people? It's actually an aggressive. It's so Mm -hmm. aggressive. You know, like, (laughs) what's your fantasy? Like, I can't tell you, like, I have couples who come in and it's like, I just want to know what his turn on are. I just want, come on. She's, she's so got to have some kind of kink. What's your fantasy? What are you into? It's like, what are you yeah, hiding yeah. from me? And people are like, I don't fucking yeah. know. I just like to have sex. I like to yeah, have sex with Generally. you. Know? So it's like... And <laughs> then you're like,
0: th- wait, because I'm not doing that? Am I doing it wrong? Like,
2: yeah, I'm you're sorry. like, am
1: I not kinky enough? Am I too boring? Yeah.
2: <laughs> all right. It's so aggressive. But we all have erotic imaginations, right? We can all find our way to fantasizing, or we could all get turned on by something. Um, I talk about sort of introducing psychological arousal into the sex script. And I talk about there being sort of face-to-face psychological arousal and side-by-side Psychological arousal. To me, face-to-face mm. psychological arousal is like two actors on a stage with nothing but themselves to create a scene, right? It's the ability to fantasize, it's the ability to talk, it's the ability to take a, a sexy thought and play with it together and bounce it around. And most of us can't do that. Most of us don't have experience doing that. We're a little too shy. We're a little too uh shame-based, right? So mm. Giving people, I learned this very early in my career as a sex therapist, giving homework assignments, like come up with a list of five sexual fantasies and share them. Go home and act out one fantasy. Never worked. So I always begin, I always begin side by side, which is to say, there's so much amazing literary erotica being written today. There are so many Mm -hmm. amazing erotic podcasts. There is so much incredible ethical porn being created. And we are such consumers of media start to take in erotic media together in a side by side experience. And let's move into a face to face experience. I was working with um, a couple recently and, um, They had a a sex script that was totally intercourse-based. It was uh, non-pleasurable. It had no flirtation, eroticism, or psychological arousal. And they agreed that they were going to start watching some ethical porn together. She really wanted to. He did not. He was afraid that she was going to judge him uh, for his porn Mm taste. So I gave them the assignment of, here are some ethical porn sites. On your own, do a little research and pick a scene... That you think is gonna turn on your partner, right? Pick a scene based mm-hmm. on what you know of your partner sexually that you think is gonna turn on. That's them. fun. Right, it is fun. Yeah. Now, in the beginning, they each picked pretty boring vanilla scenes and they weren't <laughs> particularly turned on by those scenes, but it did lead into a conversation about erotic themes and just fantasies. And then I said, so take the assignment more seriously. What do you know about your partner's personality? What do you know about their personality? How do does that extend maybe into their sexual personality so what was really interesting was um she picked for him like a tickle torture like like a bdsm femdom oh. tickle torture scene where like the woman okay. is like tickling the guy while masturbating him and he was like why the okay. hell did you pick that uh for me you know <laughs> and uh <laughs> and uh and what's interesting is, um, I, I think it was just, she just had like a funny reason, like, I know you're ticklish, and I think you've been really bad, and I think you really need to be punished, you know. And, but it was said in a kind of cute, mischievous way. He ended up picking for her, I think it was like a lesbian wrestling Scene in, yeah, which so, oh gets, in which the loser in which the loser gets linguist to orgasm. I'm like, that's losing. That sounds like winning to yeah. me. But anyway, <laughs> that's what happens to yeah. the loser. <laughs> And um, and he picked that scene because he knew that she was really interested in having more cunnilingus and he thought that the it represented both sides of her, the very dominant side of her that he also, also saw, but the side of her that was more submissive as well. Long story short, it really opened up so many interesting conversations and they went on to really enjoy side by side a lot of BDSM material together. But then they did eventually move into a kind of more like we can just play with this ourselves without needing The media. It took a little while, Mm. but that's my that's that's what I mean, sort of about going from side by side to face to face, playing with psychological arousal, incorporating that psychological arousal into your physical behaviors as part of a sex as part of a sex script.
0: So how do you how do you even get here? Like I think like how do you get to this (laughs) exploratory mindset? Because I feel like if things are good, right? Let's say you're enjoying your sex life, but you're doing the same thing over and over again, and you know that could get old if you're in a long-term relationship like how do you not approach all this when like things are good to get ahead of it opposed to when it's just not good you know
2: well that's an interesting question because For a lot of people, good is good enough, and good enough is good. Like, I don't get to meet all of the couples whose sex scripts are working. But, you know, when I think about my own sex life, when I think about uh, some of my friends' sex lives, they can actually be sometimes rather simple sex scripts that work over and over again, that sometimes have, you know, like a sequence of physical behaviors, like those 25,000 gay men that really work. And there's already some psychological arousal that they're able to build in. So you're asking, how do you get there if things are good? So one thing that I think about is what I call the erotic thread or the interval in between sexual events, right? Because sex shouldn't just be something that you decide to do. It has to come from something, right? It emerges from the eroticism That's present in your relationship already, right? So I I do focus a lot on couples trying to bring their sexual selves into their lived daily lives in some way, even if it's just for five minutes on the way out. And, you know, people's sexual selves, it tends to be different than the kind of communication that we'll have when we're talking about like, hey, our landlord's up in our rent or who's going to Whole Foods today yeah. or, you yeah. know, like that's like a very like negotiating, relational, nice relationship language, right? But the language of sex can be very raunchy. It can be very objectifying. So just getting comfortable allowing your sexual self to speak authentically, I think is... uh...
0: So I think like all this exploration is great and very exciting, but we've heard from a lot of our listeners before that they've had struggles when their sex drive doesn't match their partners or neither person's initiating Mm -hmm. as much as they'd like. We've been obviously spending this entire conversation talking about how You know, wonderful sexes and how important it is. In the case of mismatched sex drives, like, do you think one, that a relationship can still work? And two, like, how do you kind of get over that hump of having this open communication? Is it seeing someone like you, or is there other things that people can do themselves?
2: Um, yeah. I mean, I was just listening, listening to that question. We basically want to talk about mismatched libidos and desire discrepancy. You also seem to ask the question, can a relationship survive and thrive, Mm -hmm. you know, without sex or in a, in a more sexless state. And, uh, I have to tell you that one of the more alarming trends that I've seen amongst uh single people or people who are newly in relationships is really discounting the importance of sex. And I don't quite understand why that's happening, but I have had, if I, I kid you not, in the last year, at least a dozen men, it's mainly men I'm thinking of right now, who have have picked their partners, right? They're in relationships, they're engaged, they're newly married, they're living together. And they've come to me because at some point they realized they're not having sex, they're not having good sex, and they're not actually that sexually attracted to their partners. And I'm like, but you're just in a new relationship. Weren't you you sexually attracted three months ago? Like when you picked this person? To me, it's so obvious you would pick somebody thinking about sexual chemistry, maybe not privileging it entirely. And it's amazing. I've heard the same thing. You know, I made a list of all the things I'm looking for in a partner. I made my top five list. I made Mm. my top 10 list of everything that I want in a partner that's important going forward, friends, family, values, whatever. And sex actually wasn't on the list, or it was at the bottom of the Mm. list, or it was the one box that wasn't checked. Mm. And I'm like, why, why is sex so deprioritized? And I think it's actually that a lot of people who are much younger than me are, um, I think there's much more of a split between sex and intimacy. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people are out there having like sex, casual sex, adventurous sex, objectifying sex, but it's disconnected. It's split from intimacy. So they actually expect when you get to intimacy that there isn't going to be sex. And then there's also this idea that once you're married, you stop having sex. Yeah. So it's sort of like, why bother? Why should I privilege sex or prioritize sex if I'm not going to end up having it anyway?
0: So what would what would you say to that, though? Like, do you think that's like has weight or is that totally like bogus in your opinion?
1: Yeah. Why is that normalized?
2: I listen, you're talking you're talking to the most sex positive sex therapist who believes totally in the centrality (laughs) of sex. My marriage would not have survived if I wasn't incredibly sexually attracted to my wife. And if we didn't have good, consistent sex, not to say there have been times that we haven't, but sex is a glue. It's like when the shit hits the fan and we're mad at each other or mad at the world, like sex is our way of recharging and putting some positivity back into the relationship. And I'm, you know, 55 and I feel like, you know, I'm as sexually alive and I'm married. So I just say to these guys, like, who's fuck told you that. Goals,
1: goals. But back to the this issue of initiation, right? Just initiating. I think I guess my pattern has always been once I get into a long term relationship, I stop initiating. And my partner definitely has that issue. He's like, why don't you initiate more? But the times that I do initiate are very odd times. Like, right before dinner he's like i'm not in the mood right now oh, no. but i'm like i'm initiating right or just in really odd times i get i get aroused so how does a couple sink in that way and especially if one person's always asking the other person right. to initiate.
2: Right, It's it's so hard because in that kind of a relationship, UA, you might get labeled the low desire partner because you're not initiating as much as your partner initiates or would like you to initiate. So he's the high desire partner. I'm assuming, uh, I don't know if you're heterosexual or the heterosexual relationship, or but let's just say you are. You get labeled the low desire partner and the guy gets labeled the high desire partner. I actually find that just, People exist sometimes in different desire frameworks and, you know, when we first meet um, the biological anthropologist, Helen uh, Mm -hmm. Fisher, who studies um, sort of mating, she talks about the three brain systems that come together to sort of create successful relationships. And the first system that gets activated is a seeking system that's very testosterone-based in men and women, working with the free testosterone that that both people have, right? So in the beginning of a relationship, when your seeking systems are activated, you're going to be ve- both of you are going to feel like you're in the same uh, sexual desire framework. The next mm-hmm. phase is really that focusing phase where you're really just focused on each other, and that's very dopamine-driven, which also contributes to excitement and arousal. So it's not until you really start to move into the third system, which is more of an oxytocin-based system, which comes, you know, a little later, that you start to realize, whoa, we're not sexual in the same way that we used to be. And look, mm-hmm. you had Emily Nagoski on I mean, and I imagine she talked about spontaneous desire frameworks and responsive desire yeah. frameworks. And it sounds like um UA, what you're saying is um your partner is in a spontaneous desire framework, meaning he um you know, there's a sexual cue, I kind of gobble it up, I metabolize it quickly. Uh And I feel it in my body, and I'm ready to move. It's like, give me that slice of pizza looks good, I'm ready to eat it,
0: right? (laughs) Impulsive. That's how
2: I am. too.
1: Yeah. And meanwhile, I'm like, I need to be showered. He needs to have washed his penis. Like, the room has to yes. have uh, the right temperature. I shouldn't have eaten so much, you know, all, all of that. It's so interesting, like, how
0: different people are. And I mean, I guess that's like what makes it challenging, yeah. right? To work through that.
2: Yeah, and so and so you're in that deliberative or responsive mm-hmm. framework, mm-hmm. right? You need to get the exciters up and the inhibitors down. I compare it to going to the amusement park. Like I got a fast pass. <laughs> I see the ride of sex. <laughs> I can get right you're on. on. I love that. <laughs> yeah,
0: and I'm standing in line. You is waiting. I'm not standing in line. Is that what you're saying to get in there?
2: <laughs> right, and it's like, and there's the sign four hundred minutes. Oh my god. <laughs> If we're gonna go on that ride together we gotta i gotta wait online mm. with you, and we gotta make that line adventurous That's or rousing or comfortable or nice. I have to enjoy slowing down and uh waiting online yeah. with you,
1: but you know if we're on vacation like every day, anytime, anywhere, <laughs> it's probably yeah.
2: environmental for you though it's
0: more totally. like that psychological stimulus. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Must right. Be. Remember we talked about that study turning off the brain, right? Already so many of yes. the stressors mm-hmm. and the inhibitors are eliminated. So
1: true. Not thinking about our groceries. Yes.
2: So there's been so much of this conversation. Before
0: we go into takeaways, like I want to just hear from you, Ian, like some of the trends that you're seeing, because I think it's fascinating, the yeah. one that you pointed out of less people prioritizing sex. And I have some theories of why I think that might be the case, considering, you know, like A lot of us have really been in this hookup culture, and now you kind of want this partner that we all have this laundry list of things we want. So it's a lot of stuff you said, too. I'm curious, like, what other trends you've seen?
2: Yeah, I I will definitely give you trends, but if you have insight into why (laughs) especially men in their 30s are who are sexual are deprioritizing sex when picking a partner, Mm. like really deprioritizing it. Yeah, I'm all yours. So
0: I mean, I have a theory. I feel like I don't I just feel like people think it's so difficult to find a partner this day and age. Men too. I think men have educated themselves a lot. Like we actually were shocked that 40% of our audience is men. And we thought initially, when we started this podcast would be 100% women. And I think, you know, men have gone like, beyond of like, what is it holistically that I want in a partner, we all say like, you know, with age, beauty is gonna die out. And we all get old and ugly. Yeah. Anyways, so there's like this core of the internal, which I think is very important. I do agree on that. But I think that the sex needs to be there or you're just friends at the end of the day like that's the difference but i think maybe people have overcorrected so much and because we tell like people are always here i can't get it all they're like this is what i'll drop when i have to drop something
2: so it relates to getting it all right which must be a getting it all must be different than like my generation getting it all like it must be like i mean there's all these like Things are much more like what, like checklist. People
0: want an equal partner now. Right. It's what do you there's all these things they feel like they have to find.
1: I think it's also the Me Too movement Mm -hmm. I think has created a very confusing environment as much as it's made a lot of progress for women. I do think a lot of men feel like, well, Am I being a predator if I initiate or think I'm prioritizing sex? Does that make me a bad person? And like even you said, Ian, sometimes the way we talk during sex can be very degrading or it can be very nasty. So I think there's just a lot of obstacles in the way for People wanting to enjoy sex because there's just a very confusing environment.
0: Yeah, there's almost like a shame in saying that that's a quality that you're looking for in a partner. Like when we talk to people, people very rarely say sex actually. Like I think they'll say attraction, but they'll never say sex flat out Mm -hmm. because they're almost like, I shouldn't say
2: this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So there's a shame around um, acting on sex, right?
0: Yeah, I think changing gender roles is really what it comes down to. It's like equalizing and then also fall out of Me Too.
2: Yes. Right. Well, that's interesting, the whole Me Too thing and everything, because maybe that plays into the second trend. Um, and I think we did a show about this maybe recently on um, erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm, yeah. actually called erectile unpredictability or erectile variability oh. because dysfunction makes it sound sort of like a disease or something. Right. Um, but I am seeing so many men in their thirties with erectile unpredictability, like massive amounts of, uh, so I think that that, that is a real trend. Men who, um, can't get it up or, uh, can't gain and maintain erections during sex. And, um, you know, I'm sure, we have a lot of theories about that i think in the end mm-hmm. a lot of people blame porn in some way or men come in themselves blaming porn
0: that's what i was just thinking i was like maybe yeah. that's a factor of it all
2: yeah well and what would be the factor of porn in their mind julie what would it be about porn that would make it a- maybe tying it to the first one
0: more than well i could see it actually tying to both the first one why it's less important in general is because you do have this other outlet True, that you can yeah, yeah. get off on and then for the second one, maybe it's unrealistic expectations of what yeah. sex is with an actual
2: partner. Yeah. So yeah.
0: you're, you know, you, you have that performance anxiety.
2: Right. Because you feel like you have to, you know, perform like a porn star or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah no, I yeah. think that that's totally true and, and legitimate. The other thing I think is just, look, you asked me like how I got my start, right, in this field. and I think the first thing I described was that sex is complicated sex is complex sex involves connecting with another person and pleasing another person right watching porn is easy right there's nobody looking over my shoulder uh there's nobody who cares about my performance so it's just easy right so some of it is just like Mm -hmm. not being able to fathom the complexity of real sexual connection and needing to learn how to do that yeah The, the third trend i guess what is another trend that i'm seeing i'm seeing a lot of couples who um signed up for monogamy young couples who signed up for mm, monogamy yes. bought into it and uh one or both partners pretty early in the relationship want to open up the relationship and become non-monogamous yes. we're seeing that and, and as opposed and opposed to couples who have started off non-monogamously or Like, this is much harder because I really bought into the big wedding and Mm. for life and in sickness and in health. So it's like, again, challenging the script, just like you're challenging the intercourse discourse, you're challenging the monogamy discourse. That's fascinating. That's Definitely can one. see that.
0: This has been such a great conversation. I mean, I think my biggest takeaway I have is I feel like we've almost like overcorrected in society to devalue sex sometimes. And it's interesting that you're seeing that so prominently with couples. And while I don't think sex is everything in a relationship, I do believe it's a strong foundation or at the end of the day, you just have a platonic friendship. And that's what makes, like you said, Ian, you know, like you Get through the tough times because that connection is there. And I think, you know, sex is physical, but there's so much. Of closeness and intimacy that it brings when you are having sex with a partner. So I feel like the shame aspect of sex, like we need to start having more of these open conversations. People need to go out and buy your book and, you know, just keep feeling like we can talk about sex and not feeling like that has to be hidden. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that you want someone that you're sexually compatible with as a key thing in a partnership. Where it becomes wrong is where you're like, I'll only date people. I don't, I don't even want to say wrong, but like where it becomes maybe limiting is like, I'll only date people over six feet or whatever. But having a basic Connection with your partner that feels like that should be like a priority and a minimum. So I don't think we need to feel badly for saying that. And while, yeah, like you don't need someone that's perfect, like you can have it all in the key areas that matter in a long term relationship. I think ultimately, if this is someone you're going to be with for many years, like it is important to make sure that you are finding this person,
2: right? And in long term relationships, you can learn to change, you can learn to collaborate, you can learn to meet on the In the middle, very hard to create sexual chemistry if it wasn't there to begin Mm -hmm. with, right? So you can make that list of things Mm. you're looking for and go out and keep looking and say, oh, to what extent does this person meet all nine criteria? But there is something about sex, sexual chemistry that's like, you know, it defies just being on a list, it's there's something that's yep. there that you want to it's move. It's irrational, on. totally.
0: And then my other main takeaway is it's never too early to be exploratory. When things are going well, that's the best time to be exploratory because that doesn't point blame and fingers of oh you're not pleasing me and all this stuff. It's more of okay we're in this together. Let's enjoy our sex life, like because you know if you are choosing to be monogamous with someone even the best of sex can get mundane, like if you're just doing the same thing over and over again. So it doesn't mean that we have to get rid of the tried and true that works all the time, but just exploring can just find other avenues. And you know, like, I feel like so often we think we have to shake it up when things aren't going well. But that is certainly not the case.
2: I agree, and unfortunately, like I really only see people. It's I'm kind of like the dentist. People come to me when the tooth really is hurting, (laughs) as opposed to coming in for a maintenance cleaning, right? Like, uh,
0: yeah, we should have more maintenance cleanings, right? The root canal.
2: (laughs) Yeah, instead of a sexual root canal, exactly.
1: (laughs) You're the root canal. (laughs) I can kind of see that. I can because there is shame around lack of libido, lack of sex. You know, we we often talk about like how much sex we're having, how great the sex is, but we don't normalize that sex can go up and down and some maybe in relationships sometimes you just don't have the best sex and then you work on getting getting better sex. I think the sex script is very interesting to me because we definitely my partner and I have and I follow this tried and true script that definitely leads us to the ending that we both like, but maybe just revisiting that script every once Mm -hmm. in a while and seeing like, yes, this works, but what can we do to make it even better or to explore, right?
2: Right. What can you add to the script and can you start to like weave in some psychological arousal, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe like I always talk about having like a, a thick sex script at the beginning that has a lot of like psychological novelty, and then kind of thins out into the basic rhythmic behaviors, because that is when you want to like just tune out and go into like mm-hmm. that mutual flow state, you know, so like, yeah. you know, like, I think there's a lot of room usually to take a good work in sex script, and to amplify it with psychological arousal.
0: Yeah, I think my very last takeaway is like we need to start expanding outside of just intercourse because I'm so guilty of that. And I'm glad that you kind of brought that up again is sex does not mean intercourse. There's so many ways and in a way that almost like makes it less intimidating when you think about like having sex more often and trying new things can just be heavy touch and different areas that you don't necessarily associate because it's not that orgasm or end goal and all that.
2: Be clitorate. Viva la vova. Be, Be clitorate. clitorate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was I mean, that was my main takeaway: is that sex, penetrative sex, is not the entree; it's part of the meal. And meals mm-hmm. only taste best when you have a little bit of everything that builds yeah. up that satiation you feel at the end. So, I think the focus less on the penetrative sex does make the entire meal taste so much better.
2: You make me want to go home and have a meal.
1: Oh, which one? <laughs> what kind of meal?
0: <laughs> I was like, was this whole conversation foreplay like the erotica here? <laughs> I, know, I know a
2: sex you know. therapy session has worked when the couple's going to go home and have sex.
0: There you go. Yes. There you go. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Ian. This has been so great. Can you tell us like where people could find you, can find the new book, all of that?
2: Absolutely. Um, I mean, the book is hopefully still in bookstores. I would say go to my website, iankerner.com. I'm not so good with social media and a lot of stuff, but everything is on my website.
0: We'll link it in the show notes, too.
2: Ah, Oh, thank you. I
0: appreciate that.
1: Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having this conversation with us. And thank you to our listeners who are listening to this. If you would like to have a very orgasmic experience, just go into Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review because that <laughs> will make us orgasm, which will then – you will also orgasm by association. Was that good? So you don't
0: even have intercourse to have Ta-da. an orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> you just go to Apple Podcasts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, reviews are basically the determination of our livelihood, so they do make uh they do make a huge difference for us. Okay, on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Stay, Stay dateable. date-able. Your feedback is valuable to us, so don't forget to leave us a review. And most importantly, remember to stay dateable.
0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are
2: high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.